Ken Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Harvard 63 classmate Adam Hotchild. His new book is titled American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. I'm joined by 17 of my Harvard classmates. Peter. Adam and I have known each other since we were 15 years old, so I don't have to introduce myself too much. (laughs) Okay, all right. Ron, Ronnie. Uh, class of 63, Ron Blau, class of 63, working television most of my life. Um, I'm really looking forward to this discussion, ha- having read the prologue or preface to the book. It's it's great. Okay, David. David Othmer, Philadelphia, grew up in South America, worked for public television and radio most of my life. Uh, Mason. Uh, Mason Morfitt in Freeport, Maine. Uh, had a good couple of days on election day. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to push climate change in Freeport. And so we had a petition outside the polling place uh, on, on behalf of a proposed municipal rebate program for weatherization and heat pumps and stuff for lower income residents. We got about 600 signatures on that. And then uh, the two town councilors who are critical to making that happen were up for re-election and uh, I was sort of a principal campaign advisor to those guys and they both won by a solid margin. That's good. Alden. Alden Briscoe grew up in New England, now live in uh, just south of San Francisco and we have a a fundraising consulting firm work with nonprofits. Okay, Bill. Bill Collins, grew up in Boston, Harvard 63, nuclear power, nuclear waste, chemical and hazardous waste, I worked on those. I don't think I know them. Uh, and uh, I live in Aiken, South Carolina. South Carolina, as you may know, is a deep red state. So, and it got redder. I vote every election, but my vote doesn't do much. I'm okay. All right. <laughs> David Allen. Grew up in Indiana and on the Ohio redneck territory. Now living in Concord, Mass. Good. Uh, Jerry. Jerry Segundi, live in deep blue California, and my vote doesn't count very much either. I got voted in Arizona, uh, but I live in Pasadena outside of Los Angeles. Uh, lawyer, Pete Score, uh, environmental lawyer most of my life. Okay, Marcy. Um, I'm in New York City, um, uh, where um, uh, I'm best known for, for helping to lead the Westway fight to get billions from Hudson River Development Project with a highway and get those billions into mass transit. Um, That battle was won in Congress, a little known fact swept under the rug. Hmm. And good people back then in Congress and outside working their hearts out showed what a great thing democracy can be. Uh, Jeff Fox uh, from Spain, uh, where we vote by mail, uh, and we can't vote in Spain though because we're not Europeans. If we were Europeans, we could vote in local elections here. But uh, but anyway, and uh, well, we've known, I've known uh, 
I'm glad to see Adam again. I've known him since we were near roommates in uh, Leverett House. And uh, his, Adam, your, your current work is ex very, very relevant to fiction I'm working on now. So I'll be very yeah. glad to, to get acquainted with a new book and talk to you again. Okay, John. Oh, hi, John Woodford here in Michigan. I grew up across the state in the little town of Benton Harbor, Michigan on the lake. And I'm here, I've been writing and editing and I, I found the beginning of Adam's book a real thrill. Just, it's like being in a great movie, the cutting and the action and the shifting from the Wobblies to uh, Woodrow Wilson. So I can't wait to get the whole thing. And I hope to read it in paper because I find I can't remember much when I read stuff online. <laughs> All right, George Allen. Hi, I'm on the other side of Los Angeles uh, from uh, Jerry Second, and I read the prologue, Adam, and I can't wait to get the book. I ordered it from Amazon and uh, uh, so I can get it on Kindle and I'll get it from the bookstore because I uh, always feel guilty about just buying from Amazon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Nick. Nick Bancroft, uh, outside of Boston, Medfield, Mass, uh, class of 63, India, Peace Corps, and then uh, settled back around uh, Boston. Uh, I, uh, <clears throat> I've read uh, King Leopold's Ghost and thoroughly enjoyed it. That's the only book I've read, but I'm looking forward to this one. <laughs> also, yesterday, uh, uh, it was nice to be around Boston to be able to Welcome Spencer Jardine up from Florida uh, at uh, Henrietta's table for lunch. Oh, mm. okay. All right, good. David McGregor. Hi, um, David McGregor from Queens. Spent my time in architecture and urban design and just finished rereading um, Adam's writing for the 55th journal. And I'm hoping that grandpa can tell us some bedtime stories if he's got time. <laughs> <laughs> Doug Shapiro. Uh, hi, uh, Doug Shapiro. Uh, I'm a retired physician and behavioral ecologist. Um, my wife and I live in Louisville, Kentucky, just across the Ohio River from where David Allen uh, grew up on his family farm. Okay, Hamp. <laughs> Hamp Howell, class of 63, Nashville, Tennessee. I uh, love you all. And I can't resist pointing out that Kent asked you to keep it down this morning because there are so uh, many of us and, and, that, and that we couldn't. Glad <laughs> <laughs> you love us too, Hamp. Uh, Ken Manister, I'm in Los Altos, California, as I've already uh, uh, conveyed by email to Adam. Um, uh, it was October 23rd. I was uh, in the Charlotte, North Carolina airport uh, looking for something to read on a long uh, flight back to San Francisco. And uh, there it was. Uh, and uh, I said, whoa, that's a good choice. And uh, it, it was a good choice. I, as I've conveyed to Adam, it, it's really masterful and thought provoking, uh, relevant and very uh, educational uh, work. I learned a lot about a period I never really understood. Liz. 
Hi, um, I'm also class of 63, Radcliffe, um, and I'm uh, an almost retired clinical psychologist. I live in Tacoma Park, Maryland, and therefore yeah. I voted for Jamie Raskin. Uh, however, yeah. I am a Californian, and it, I hold on to my California identity very strongly. So I'm very interested to be here. Thanks. Cindy. Hi, I'm Cindy Allison, Cindy Wardle, grew up in Omaha. And I've been living in Italy, in, um, in Tuscany, in the county region, uh, since, well, for a long time, 50-some uh, years. And um, uh, I'm a great fan of Adam's books. Okay, great. Spencer. Oh, Adam, Spencer, uh, Harvard College, uh, Project Tanganyika. Uh, I haven't seen you since those days. Uh, thanks so much uh, for the the uh, the uh, lunch yesterday. Uh, that was fantastic. And uh, back to Adam. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, I've tracked you along with my with Peter your whole your whole career and, and your books. And I'm just looking forward to the the conference. Great to see you. It's uh, great to be with you and to see old friends uh, like Peter, whom I actually knew before Harvard. Uh, then we roomed together there for a couple of years and several of you I knew there and others I wish I had known there. Uh, so it's good to be with you and I'm grateful to have the chance to talk about my new book. Let me begin by asking you to think about some of the most dramatic and shocking events of the last couple of years. Uh, and we're all all too familiar with them. Uh, a president who tried to steal an election, the January 6th assault on the Capitol last year, the killing of George Floyd on camera, a string of appalling Supreme Court decisions. But imagine if a hundred years from now, the standard history textbook said little or nothing about any of these things. And I think that's the case when the standard high school history textbooks treat the United States of 100 years or so ago. There were equally shocking things that happened then, but we have really forgotten about them. Now, we may have learned about some of them at Harvard and later in life, but I think the, uh, the standard mythology of American history, as it's put forth in high schools and so on, is always a sort of glorious and uplifting one and skips over a lot of things that we ought to know about and that are relevant today. So think back to that high school history textbook. And if it was like mine, there was always a chapter on the First World War when the nations of the old world were tearing each other apart. But meanwhile, the United States was a country at peace. Uh, a nation of small town churchgoers, new industries, hardworking farmers. Then the nasty Germans sent their submarines to start sinking American ships. President Woodrow Wilson declared enough is enough. We need to make the world safe for democracy. And Congress listened to him and declared war. Uh, the Doughboys went to Europe, the American troops in those sort of broad-brimmed forest ranger hats. They fought bravely, and they helped win the war. 
then that chapter of the textbook ended. You turned the page and the next chapter of American history began. The 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, Flappers, the Charleston, Prohibition, Speakeasies, and of course, the heyday of Babe Ruth. But what I want to talk about is the missing chapter between those two. It's a period that's long fascinated me. Uh, I said that the image of the United States before it went to war in 1917 was that it was a peaceful country. But this was not so. It was a tinderbox of tensions with three big conflicts going on. One was between business and labor. Routinely, dozens of people were killed in labor strife each year. In 1913 and 1914 alone, for example, more than 70 people, including women and children, were killed in battles between striking miners in Colorado and <clears throat> police, National Guard, and company detectives. A second conflict uh, <clears throat> that divided the United States was between nativists and immigrants. You know, as, as you know, this country has long been filled with conflict between people whose ancestors arrived several generations ago and those who've come more recently. And a third major conflict was between whites and blacks. Most black Americans were doing miserable low paid work like picking cotton as sharecroppers <clears throat> and most white people wanted to keep them in such jobs. So these were some of the tensions in this not very peaceful country, country of ours a little over a century ago. And when the US entered the First World War in April of 1917, it was like pouring gasoline on three sets of flames. There was an absolute frenzy of hyper-patriotism. Uh, there was a fierce barrage of propaganda from the government this is a U.S. Army recruiting poster. And there was tremendous paranoia about spies, which mixed in with some of the ethnic hostility. Now, I heard something about this atmosphere of paranoia from my father, who was 25 years old in 1917. He was the son of a Jewish immigrant from Germany. His mother was the daughter of uh, German-Jewish immigrants. And the family spoke German at home around the dining room table, but they were terrified of doing so on the street because that could get you beaten up. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> schools and colleges stopped teaching German. Several states passed laws against speaking German in public or on the telephone. And all over the country, there were literally dozens of bonfires of German language books uh, this particular one was outside a high school in Baraboo, Wisconsin. <clears throat> Another instance of this uh, hysteria was uh, happened to a guy named Robert Prager, who was a miner in Collinsville, Illinois, who had the bad luck to be German born. One day he was seized by a drunken mob, wrapped in an American flag, forced to sing the Star Spangled Banner, and lynched. Here are the people who lynched him. They were put on trial. The jury deliberated for 10 minutes and found them all innocent, 
while a military band played in the rotunda of the courthouse. And anti-German hysteria popped up in other ways as well. There was no more Mendelssohn wedding march played at weddings, for instance. Names changed. Berlin, Iowa became Lincoln. East Germantown, Indiana became Pershing. And families named Schmidt became Smith. And the Frankfurter became the hot dog, a change that's still with us. And there was ferocity in the air at the very highest level. Take, for instance, Elihu Root. Uh, he was a former Secretary of State, Secretary of War, Senator from New York, now in 1917, a special emissary of President Wilson. Uh, the absolute epitome of WASP, Wall Street to Washington respectability. It occurs to me just now that he might also have been a Harvard graduate. I'm not sure, though. I need to look that up. <laughs> uh, in the summer of 1917, he told an audience in New York that pro-German traitors were threatening the war effort. And here I'm quoting him directly. There are men walking about the streets of this city tonight who ought to be taken out at sunrise tomorrow and shot for treason. There are some newspapers published in this city every day, the editors of which deserve execution for treason. And notice how his words were just reported straightforward in the New York Times. That's what's shown on the screen here. Uh, the daily newspapers of this era, by and large, were terrible. They usually just uncritically repeated whatever nonsense government officials said. Now, people like Root were as fierce as they were about the First World War because there was considerable resistance to it. A group called the Women's Peace Party agitated against the uh, people wrote very popular anti-war songs like this one, I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier. And millions of Americans, like millions of people in Europe by this point, 1917, uh, could see that this terrible war, the worst that history had seen up to that point, was going to remake the world for the worse in every way. Uh, and they thought the US shouldn't be a part of it. A strong voice against the war was the magazine, The Masses, uh, the liveliest magazine in America at that time. It was left-leaning, but not doctrinaire. It published writers like John Reed, Walter Lippmann, Sherwood Anderson, Edna St. Vincent Millay, uh, many of the best writers of the day. In some ways, it was a precursor of The New Yorker, a mixture of fiction and reportage and poetry, uh, good artwork, and they actually pioneered that style of cartoon that's become the New Yorker's hallmark, where you have a cartoon and then one line of dialogue is the caption. Someone else who spoke out strongly against the war was Eugene Debs, the perennial socialist candidate for president, who at one point had won 6% of the popular vote. A strong opponent of war. Also, Emma Goldman, the charismatic anarchist leader, who as soon as the US declared war, she began organizing against the massive conscription effort, uh, the draft that was part of, that, uh, of what was going on then. Uh, six US senators voted against going to war. The most outspoken was Robert La Follette of Wisconsin. And he asked, if this is a war to make the world safe for democracy, 
why aren't we pushing for self-determination for Ireland, for Egypt, for India? Uh, La Follette began receiving nooses in the mail. He was hanged in effigy at the University of Wisconsin. Other senators opened an investigation about whether he should be expelled from the Senate. And of course, even to raise the question of Ireland, Egypt, and India and their independence was considered threatening to the war effort because these were colonies of our ally, Great Britain. Uh, the government moved quickly to suppress anti-war demonstrations uh, of all kinds. And if you resisted the draft, uh, you were conscripted into the army anyway, locked up in harsh detention camps like this one, or in military prisons. And in those military prisons, prisoners were expected to do manual labor for eight hours a day. Those who refused to do so were shackled to their cell bars for the eight hours a day that they were meant, meant to be working. And this drawing was made by an artist from that magazine, The Masses, who himself endured this as a prisoner. Now, in its crackdown on dissent, the government had help from vigilantes. Organizations of them sprang up around the country, the equivalent to you know, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers today. The largest was something called the American Protective League. And if you were a member of the American Protective League, you got to wear a badge like this one uh, that had your rank on it. This was the lowest rank operative, and it went up to lieutenant, captain, chief, and so on. Um, and if you look carefully at the middle of the badge, it says auxiliary to the US Department of Justice, because this enormous organization uh, was organized with Department of Justice support. By the end of 1917, it would have a quarter of a million members. It was made up of men too old to fight, but who wanted to feel that they were doing something vigilant and patriotic here at home. One of the things they did was to carry out what they called slacker raids, where they did citizen's arrests on a huge scale of uh, young men who uh, couldn't produce their draft cards, uh, taking tens of thousands of people into custody, holding them in warehouses, armories, police stations, sometimes for a couple of days until somebody could fetch the draft card from home and prove that the guy wasn't violating the law. And if someone didn't have a draft card or hadn't registered, you know, they were then shipped off to the army. Sometimes also a slacker was considered somebody who didn't buy a war bond. Uh, but slacker raids by the American Protective League were the comparatively mild side of vigilantism in these years. Other expressions of it were much worse. Here's one such episode. The people referred to in this uh, newspaper from Tulsa, Oklahoma, were Wobblies, members of the country's most militant labor union, which I'm sure you, you know, the Industrial Workers of the World. They were beaten, tarred, and feathered. What the article doesn't say is that one of the leaders of the gang of mass vigilantes who carried out this action was the local police chief. And he had invited the editor of the local newspaper along so that it could be reported in great detail. Someone else, an organizer for the Wobblies, 
had a more painful end. He was seized from his bed in Butte, Montana, mining town, and hanged from a railroad bridge outside of town. Uh, Frank Little, 38 years old, his crime was coming to organize miners in this mining town where some weeks earlier an underground fire had taken the lives of more than 160 miners. Which brings us to the point that the real target of repression during the war was not only draft evaders or people who were supposedly pro-German, it was organized labor. This was an era of expanding unions and many strikes, and business was desperate to suppress unions in any way they could. Strikes were often put down by military force or by the police. The war gave the federal government and big business the perfect excuse to crack down on the left and on organized labor because they could say to strikers, you are impeding the war effort. And then something else happened that inflamed tensions still more, the Russian Revolution. In November 1917, the Bolsheviks, the most extreme faction of the uh, Russian left, seized power. And this created much terror in, among the US establishment, who were fearful that the Russian Revolution would spread to the United States. A very unrealistic fear, I think. but combined with the patriotic fervor over the war, this produced the worst political repression in the United States since the immediate aftermath of slavery. And it happened on several fronts. <clears throat> uh, one was press censorship on an enormous scale. Uh, this August 1917 issue of the magazine, The Masses, was its last. It was printed, but it was banned from the US mail. Why? Censors objected to several articles and cartoons. Here's one of the cartoons they didn't like, the Liberty Bell crumbling. And so the best magazine in the country was forced to cease publishing. Here's the guy who was America's chief press censor, Albert S. Burleson. He was postmaster general and the law gave to him the power to control what went through the mail. He was a former congressman from Texas, very right-wing, an arch segregationist. His father and grandfather were Confederate veterans. At the time he was born, uh, his family owned 20 slaves. He loved being chief censor. Between 1917 and early 1921, he banned more than 400 issues, specific issues of American newspapers or magazines from the mail. And remember, the mail was crucial in those days. No internet, no radio, TV. Uh, a mainstream daily newspaper could be sold on street corners or delivered to people's homes, but for weeklies, monthlies, journals of opinion of all kinds, and most of the nation's foreign language press, the mail was essential. Burleson forced some 75 different publications to shut down entirely. With his hatred of dissenting media, he would have, of course, been much at home in the Trump administration. Ironically, he managed this whole censorship operation from post office headquarters in Washington, which a century later became the Trump <laughs> International Hotel. 
Another front on which the government moved uh, <clears throat> to silence dissent was putting the dissenters in jail. Here's Eugene Debs as a federal prisoner sentenced to 10 years for making a speech against the war. Some be, and, and he was chosen because something else the government and business was eager to suppress <clears throat> was the Socialist Party. They went after many, many leaders of the, of the party, former candidates for the House, the Senate, governors in different states. Uh, the party could have had a good-sized party Congress behind bars if all of these people uh, had been in the same prison. Like many war critics, Debs was still in jail two years after the war ended. Uh, in November 1920, while convict number 9653 in the federal penitentiary in Atlanta, he was again a candidate for president and received more than 900,000 votes. Uh, another socialist who was in jail with him for speaking against the war, uh, or in a different prison, but he was sent to jail at the same time, was Kate Richards O'Hare, a fiery party activist and orator from Kansas, who had a particularly strong uh, following in the prairie states because she'd grown up on a, on a farm there, <clears throat> could attract thousands of people when she gave speeches. In prison, she found herself in the very next cell to Emma Goldman. Uh, and even though they came from very different political traditions, the two women became close friends and each recorded their memories of the other. And for me, writing history is all about people. And when two of the people you're following have written their impressions of the other, it's just a writer's dream. Uh, Goldman served nearly two years in prison, but after that, the government deployed another weapon against her. It deported her from the United States. Uh, just before Christmas of 1919, she and 248 other radicals the government was eager to get rid of were expelled from the country on this ship. And remember, all of this was happening under Woodrow Wilson, which I think goes to show that you don't have to be a, 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 an orange-haired loudmouth to preside over repression. Wilson was the most genteel, scholarly, dignified, well-spoken president imaginable. The author of a dozen books, former president of Princeton University, college professor most of his life, a friend of many writers and artists, yet he oversaw the greatest assault on American civil liberties in the 20th century. The year after the war ended, 1919, saw some of the worst racial violence in American history. Uh, and one reason for that was that nearly 400,000 returning Black war veterans and nearly 4 million returning white war veterans were competing for jobs. And jobs were scarce because the war industries had closed down. Uh, there was no market anymore for tanks, guns, planes, naval ships, bullets, ammunition, artillery shells, and so on. Furthermore, Black Americans were fleeing the South. But the Great Migration was underway by this point. They were trying to get out of a region where there's often an <clears throat> average of one lynching a week. Uh, but as they arrived in northern cities, they met more violence there. 
and a great wave of it swept the country in the summer of 1919. Uh, these are white people in Chicago stoning to death a black man that summer. Uh, more than three dozen people were killed in Chicago, almost all of them black. Uh, the army was out in the streets. Here they are questioning a black man on the Chicago streets. President Wilson incidentally said almost nothing about this wave of racial violence. Lynchings took place in the North too. The mayor of Omaha, who's mentioned in this headline, had intervened to try to stop a lynching. Police managed to cut him down, injured and unconscious, just in time to save his life. But the man he was trying to save was not so lucky. He was lynched and his body was burned. And they declared martial law in Omaha. These are US troops on the streets of Omaha and in several other American cities as well. That year, uh, 1919, saw more than 70 black Americans lynched, the highest total in over a decade, and many hundreds of them killed in this racial rioting as well. Uh, which is always referred to as race riots, but really they should be called white riots because the, they were almost always uh, initiated by white people. There's no accurate total death toll from that racial warfare in the summer of 1919, but it's believed to be in the high hundreds. The, reasons we, the reason we don't know the exact total figure is that the largest number of people were killed uh, in and around a town called Elaine, Arkansas, at the hands of both local vigilantes and federal troops. And they were black sharecroppers who were trying to form a union. And the bodies of those people killed were simply tossed in the Mississippi River and floated downstream. So we don't have an accurate death toll there, but as I say, it's believed to approach uh, a thousand. Something else that happened at this time has an eerily familiar ring today. Uh, the country was swept by a frenzy about deporting people. The leading candidates for both the Republican and Democratic presidential nominations in 1920 were campaigning on promises of mass deportations. On the Republican side, the leading candidate was General Leonard Wood, a blood and thunder type who was, incidentally, among other things, the commander of those troops on the street in Omaha. On the Democratic side, the front runner for the 1920 Democratic nomination was the Attorney General, A. Mitchell Palmer, who was determined not to be outdone as a law and order candidate. And he staged the notorious Palmer raids in more than 30 cities in which he ordered the arrests of thousands of radicals, the total number is believed to be around 10,000, looking for people he hoped could be deported because they had not yet gotten officially naturalized as American citizens. In the course of these Palmer raids, the raiders also seized and destroyed left-wing literature of all kinds, these are federal agents and local police in Boston with some of the uh, literature they, they have in their hall. They also trashed the offices of progressive groups where they made their arrests. This is the New York City office of the Wobblies. And they were proud of having done this and invited newspaper photographers to come in and take pictures of their handiwork. 
There was, however, one unexpected hero of this very dark time, a man named Louis F. Post. And he was acting secretary of labor. And I'll tell you why that was important. The arrests of the people that Palmer was trying to deport were carried out by the Justice Department. But deportation had to be approved by the Immigration Bureau, which fell under the Labor Department. And normally, you wouldn't find such a good person at such a high rank. But what had happened was that the Secretary of Labor was on sick leave. The person who normally would have taken his place, who was an ally of Attorney General Palmer, resigned to run for Congress. And Post, who was the number three person in the department, became acting Secretary of Labor. He was a longtime progressive, a former magazine editor, who was outraged by the planned deportations. He felt nobody should be expelled from the United States because of their political opinions. He was also a very skillful bureaucrat, an experienced lawyer, an ardent believer in civil liberties. And he managed to find legal problems with thousands of arrest warrants. He invalidated them, got most of the people awaiting deportation out of jail and was able to save several thousand people from being expelled from the United States. His actions enraged the real architect of the Palmer raids, <clears throat> who was the 24-year-old J. Edgar Hoover, the head of what was called then the radical division of the Justice Department. He was furious. He prepared a dossier against Post. He got the American Legion to demand that Post be fired. He got Congress to investigate Post, but Post held on uh, and stayed in office until the very end of the Wilson administration. Hoover lost this battle with Post, but of course went on to win many others. Uh, <clears throat> and I imagine some of you, like me, managed to use the Freedom of Information Act to get files that the FBI had on you, because so many of us were active in things like the Civil Rights Movement, the movement against the Vietnam War in the 1960s. So Hoover told the country he was monitoring dangerous progressives and radicals of all kinds. For example, men referred to in this newspaper, which is the front page of a newspaper in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1919, about people who were arrested in an alleged bomb plot by the IWW, the Wobblies. Three suspects, and the man who was supposed to be the kingpin of this bomb plot, Pittsburgh radicals knew him as Lewis Walsh, he was the secretary of the local Wobbly branch. He was active in the city's radical library. He was on the strike committee for a big steel strike. He was a member of many other left-wing organizations as well. And Walsh was violent. Uh, during a streetcar driver's strike in Pittsburgh, for instance, he and another man very jubilantly beat a strike breaker unconscious. Clearly somebody obviously very suspicious in the eyes of the authorities. But the whole time, he was really agent number 836 of the Bureau of Investigation, the predecessor of the FBI, periodically slipping away to meet J. Edgar Hoover in Washington or New York and brief him. 
Uh, and thanks to the National Archives, a place that's back in the news again these days, uh, we can read the hundreds of pages of reports that he wrote. Um, some of the things that the Pittsburgh Wobblies were accused of doing were actually instigated by him. Uh, some years after this, his cover was blown, a labor newspaper did an expose on him, and he had a long second career above ground. Uh, one of the things he did was to become a lieutenant colonel in the Michigan State Troops, the ancestor of the Michigan National Guard. Another aspect of these years, 1917 to 21, is that not only did the Justice Department greatly increase its surveillance of progressive activists of all sorts, but so did the US military. The US Army was so certain that there might be uh, a radical uprising in the United States that they prepared a contingency plan to put the whole country under martial law, complete with the wording of the proclamation that the president should issue when that happened. Happily, things did not reach that point, but it's a reminder of just how close to the brink we came. Gradually, the repression eased, there were many demonstrations urging the release of those still in jail. In 1921, Wilson finally left office, Warren Harding became president, and at last, in response to these demonstrations, he gradually let almost all remaining political prisoners out of jail. He felt it safe to do so because Wilson's repression had basically accomplished its purpose. The labor movement, the Socialist Party, progressive forces of all kinds had been severely crippled. Uh, on the subject of prisoners, it's remarkable and appalling to realize just how many there were. During this period of frenzy, 1970 to 1921, roughly a thousand Americans went to jail for a year or more, and a far larger number for shorter periods, solely for things that they wrote or said. One of those was Eugene Debs. Harding finally released him after Debs had spent two and a half years in prison and even invited him to Washington for a visit on his way home. He joked that he'd run for president five times, but this was the first time he'd actually gotten to the White House. <laughs> so what can we conclude about this era? I think it's a reminder of the dark currents that have long run through this country, uh, racism, xenophobia, nativism, an eagerness to hunt for scapegoats, and vigilante justice. And those currents, of course, are still there today. And it's also a reminder of just how quickly and easily such forces can be unleashed. A century ago, it was the twin crises of going to war and the shock of the Russian Revolution that brought all this toxic stuff boiling to the surface. And the demagoguery of Donald Trump helped to do so again very recently. What crises may fuel these things in the future, we can't tell. But whatever they turn out to be, we have to be on guard. Because I think these last few years have taught us something, the same lesson as the American experience of 100 years ago, 
Constitutional democracy is fragile. It can vanish in the blink of an eye if we're not vigilant. I want to end by reading you something that Emma Goldman said when she was put on trial in 1917. Remember, she was sentenced uh, to two years in prison and then expelled from the country for organizing against the draft. Gentlemen of the jury, she said, remember no women on juries in those days. We respect your patriotism, but may there not be different kinds of patriotism. Our patriotism is that of the man who loves a woman with open eyes. He is enchanted by her beauty, yet he sees her faults. So we too, who know America, love her beauty, her richness, her great possibilities, Above all, do we love her great apostles who dream and work for liberty, but with the same passionate emotion, we hate her cant and her corruption. It was a good definition of patriotism then, and I think it still is today. I would love to hear any thoughts or questions, uh, comments that you've got. What are, what are the reasons that, that uh... This isn't in our history books that we get taught in school. Why is that? Well, Pete, I, th I think it's just that all countries, you know, have a strong impulse to mythologize their past. And, you know, we like to portray ourselves as a country that was uh, steadily going uh, onward and upward and getting better and better. And yes, there were a few minor blips like slavery here and you know discrimination there, but we got rid of those things. And I think that's, the, that's a very strong impulse uh, in this country because you know, we always like to think of ourselves as uh, somehow leading the world and the city on the hill that's the inspiration for, for other nations coming into being all around the world. And I think this stuff just gets swept under the rug. The information is all there, and there are plenty of specialist historians, you know, whose work I've drawn on and who, who uh, dealt with it. I think people, when this was still something that... Uh, was in the memory of people who were still alive. Uh, they were aware of it. I was doing some reading recently about the New Deal period. And it's interesting how many of the New Dealers said at one point or another, we must not go back to the period of the Palmer raids. People began feeling badly about this after it had happened. Um, but it's somehow never become part of the mythology of our history. Uh, I just think all countries, and, I, and I've done some work on looking at how, um, uh, you know, for instance, the, the portrayal of slavery in the history of the British Empire has changed only in recent years, as there have come to be some two million of Afri people of African descent in Britain who are demanding that the story be told differently. Um, you know, I've written about Belgium and the Congo, and that's a history that has been tremendously mythologized in Belgium right up to the present day. So all countries seem to have this impulse. Uh, one thing that, that really struck me and I found quite chilling is you draw some parallels between 
the uh, roles that a number of the major uh, very bad players in this period, uh, those players had experience with the US involvement in the Philippines and the suppression of revolt in the Philippines. And that was interesting. At, at, at a couple places, maybe just one in your book, you draw a parallel to the experience of some of the troublesome participants in our democracy now who uh, had experiences in Vietnam. Uh, and and I, I, you didn't, as I recall in the book, you didn't do a lot with that, but I wondered if have anything you could say about the extent to which that military experience, which was brutal in the Philippines, um, uh, deserves or warrants comparison to um, particularly sort of the military, the paramilitary type uh, folks involved now who had Vietnam in their backgrounds. Yeah, well, you're right about that, Ken. I think we've seen it in uh, <clears throat> the last couple of years where uh, quite a few leaders of these groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and so on are military veterans of <clears throat> the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, when you train people in killing in waging war on people who are considered national enemies and subversives and so on. They sometimes come home and want to keep doing it here. Uh, there was also somebody, I believe a Harvard historian, a woman, I cannot remember her name, who wrote a book uh, about the right-wing militias of the 1990s, you know, the people who blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City and various other actions how many of them were Vietnam War veterans. Again, something not so surprising, but it's a pattern throughout our history. And I was fascinated by the extent to which the Philippine War kept coming up again and again and again in this period I was writing about, 1917 to 21, which was long after it ended. The Philippine War, you remember, was lasted from 1899 to 1902 and then continued a little bit sporadically after that and it was a very very brutal uh crushing of the independence movement in the philippines which the united states had seized from spain in 1898 and turned into an american colony and a lot of filipinos understandably did not want to be colonized by the united states uh, the war was very nasty, as counter-guerrilla wars often are. Uh, 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 torture was widely used. Uh, a version of waterboarding where they would capture a Filipino guerrilla, pin him to the ground, uh, and pour huge quantities of water down his mouth until he talked. And you can actually see photographs of Filipino uh, independence fighters enduring this. And a lot of the people who featured in this period, one of, you know, were veterans of that war. One of the principal organizers of the American Protective League, for example, uh, General Leonard Wood, who up until the very last moment was the uh, leading candidate for the Republican nomination for president in 1920, another Philippine war veteran. How do you assess the situation leading up to these times? Uh, is there anything in there comparative with where we are today 
that might help us look forward uh, in our own circumstances? Well, I think it comes back to, uh, you know, all this stuff is always there in this country. It's under the surface. And who are the demagogues or what are the crises that are going to provide an excuse for the eruption of the toxic stuff to happen again? Uh, one of the things that just really amazes me is how rapidly it began in 1917. As I said, it wasn't a peaceful country. There were these tensions going on, black, white, nativist, immigrant, business, labor. But the massive degree of repression, you know, the putting hundreds of people in prison for their political opinions, press censorship, vigilante violence on a huge scale, that hadn't happened. But it began so quickly uh, because the war provided an excuse. And, uh, you know, in the first chapter of the book, I even sort of zero in on almost the moment that <laughs> the spark was lit. Um, when Wilson went before Congress, April 2nd, 1917, and asked it to declare war, it wasn't completely clear that he was going to ask for an all-out war. Some people thought it was just going to be, you know, wanting authorization for U.S. ships to sink German submarines. But at the moment that it became clear he was asking for a massive draft and full-scale war, the... Uh, person who led the cheering in Congress was the Chief Justice of the United States, Edward White of Louisiana, very conservative man, himself a Confederate veteran, who leapt to his feet, led the cheering, and began weeping tears of joy at the thought that the United States was going to war at last. So it's as if that moment the spark was lit. I think wars provide that excuse. The odd thing about 1917, of course, was that the U.S. hadn't been attacked. It was not like Pearl Harbor, a quarter century later. It was not like September 11th, uh, 2001. The only thing that had happened was that the Germans started sinking American ships, which they had warned they were going to do. You know, they said, if you send your ships carrying munitions, to Britain and France, once they go into this area of the ocean that we've demarcated as a war zone, they will be sunk. Uh, that wasn't an attack on the United States, but it was enough to ignite the fuse. So how is today similar or different? I think I worry about something igniting that fuse today. Uh, I think if there's something else like the September 11th attacks uh, in 2001, that could be such an ignition point. At the same time, I do think we have, as a country, a greater sense of the importance of the Bill of Rights, of the First Amendment, than existed a century ago. Uh, the Espionage Act, which was the law under which uh, all of this repression basically took place, was upheld by the Supreme Court unanimously in early 1919. There was actually then a second case 
later 1919, where two justices changed their minds, which was interesting. Um, but I don't think today's Supreme Court, as awful as it is, would do the same thing. Uh, another thing that gives me some hope today compared to a century ago, the mass media we have is much more critical, much more skeptical of the government um, than I think the mass media in 1917. Uh, there were a few dissenting journals like the masses that I talked about and others, but the daily newspapers pretty much moved in lockstep, um, you know, reproducing whatever politicians said. So, you know, I do feel the climate of the country is somewhat more enlightened today, but I still fear, fear things that could set off something like this all over again. Well, Adam, thank you so much. Before you go, what is, what's next? What are you thinking about now for your next book? I wish I had an answer for you, Kent. I don't. I have a lot of trouble finding subjects. I often get stuck between books. And I think the reason for it is this. If you're going to work on something, you know, six or eight hours a day for three or four years, which is usually what it takes me, you have to be really obsessed and fascinated by uh, subject and 95% of the subjects that obsess and fascinate me do so because somebody wrote a very good book about it. So trying to find my way around that obstacle is always uh, a tough one. And I haven't found the answer for the next book. I'm trying to keep busy by writing, um, you know, magazine pieces and book reviews and so forth and hoping I'll stumble onto something which where I see a, a glimmer of a book idea, but it hasn't happened yet, alas. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming thank on then. Oh. Well, a real pleasure to be with all of you. I appreciate the chance greatly. Okay, thank you. Thank you, thank you everybody. You. Thank you very much. That was classmate Adam Hochschild. His new book is American Midnight, A Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get podcasts. Our podcasts also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.